All right, if you can all uh, turn in the Word of God to Mark 8. We are going to be turning back to Mark this week. And just join me as uh, I read Mark 8, verse 1 through 26. About this time, another large group had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days, and they've had nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, How are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in this wilderness? Jesus asked, How much bread do we have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them in pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterwards, the disciples picked up, the seven, picked up seven large baskets of leftovers. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Demutha. Then the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived. They came and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to, move his author- to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these people demand a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back in the boat and left them and, the cr- and then crossed over to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food and they only had one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them to watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this point, they began to argue with each other because they, didn't, because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said. And when I fed 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets were left over did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, he said to them. When they had arrived at Bethsaida, some of the people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch him and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him. I'm cutting this story short, I think. (laughs) Get to take care of it for me? Sorry. No, it's fine. (laughs) It's just the best part, right? Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? 
The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. This is God's word. You may be seated. No, you already are. Wonderful. Well, continuing our studies through Mark, and as we've been saying about Mark, Mark is written for disciples. It's a roadmap for discipleship to Jesus. Um, And we think that in this time, a time of just total confusion about what we're to be doing, about what is important, what we're to be prioritizing, who we are, uh, that this book is a roadmap for the people of God and how to follow the way of Jesus. Another thing that we have been reminding ourselves about the book of Mark is that Mark is a book of mystery. Mark's gospel is so filled with mysterious references to Jesus and to his identity. And Mark, though he rarely quotes the, New, uh, the Old Testament, he is this master of the biblical text. And he's constantly dropping um, these proverbial shoes or these breadcrumbs for us to pick up. But we're only going to pick up on those if we are listening, if we are paying attention to what's going on, if we're letting the scripture just sit with us, if we're letting our hearts and minds marinate in it. Richard Hayes, a biblical scholar, says this, for Mark, the character of God's presence in Jesus is a mysterious mystery that can be approached only by indirection through riddle-like allusions to the Old Testament. And Mark What he is doing in this book, he is showing us how God is cryptically and mysteriously present in bringing his kingdom on earth through the suffering, crucified, and resurrected Messiah. And Mark is, remember, just continually provoking the most important question, who is Jesus? Who is he really? What is this story really about? Now, On a cursory reading of Mark 8, maybe you felt this as we were reading it this morning. Chapter 8 seems to be fragmented stories of simply what happened. Well, Jesus went here and he fed some people. And then he went here and he had an argument with these people. And then he had a discussion with his disciples in the boat. And then he healed a blind man. It's just what Jesus did. But as we'll see, Mark has joined these stories together and told them in such a way to tell us something about Jesus and to tell us something about what it means to be his disciples. And as we've noted, Mark's Jesus speaks cryptically and mysteriously on purpose because he wants us to press into his story of Jesus so we don't miss what God is doing, so we don't miss how God is bringing his kingdom to this world and how today we join him in that kingdom work. So we're going to look at this text in four quick parts, but we're going to start with the feeding of the multitudes and the dullness of the disciples. So we're told when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. And Jesus looks at the disciples and said, hey, let's feed these people. Have we heard this story before? Right? We have. And I think that Mark, even in the ESV, he uses this, this phrase, when again. And I think what Mark wants to do with this is that the author understands what's happening here, the audience, the reader understands what's happening here, but notice the disciples are almost just out of touch. They're almost like dull. Like, we've done this before. We've been here before. Why is there confusion about what to do to feed these people? 
Jesus in chapter 6, Mark, Mark recorded that he fed 5,000 men. That didn't include women and children. And yet, in this passage, it's like it never happened. And what Mark, I think, is wanting to do is he's wanting to show us that the disciples, and not just in this passage, but the whole bread section from chapter 6 all the way through this section, that the disciples are dull of sight and slow of heart. The disciples themselves need healing of their hearts. They need opening of their sight and clarity about what it means to follow Jesus. And this whole section here will work as a bridge into the next section where Peter will make the declaration that Jesus is Messiah, but that will be corrected by Jesus, that he is going the way of the cross and all of his followers must go that way as well. So the disciples are in need of healing of sight and correction about the way of Jesus. So that's the way that this story starts. But then next we see the Pharisees and their blindness and hardness of hearts. It says the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, has Jesus shown signs to this generation that he's speaking to? Have there been any signs that Jesus has done to show who he is? Here's the irony. It's, there's actually been numerous signs that Jesus has given to these Religious leaders, to the people of Israel, even to the Gentiles. Larry Hurtado in his commentary on Mark says this, Jesus' refusal to give a sign to the Pharisees must be read in the overall context and narrative of Mark, which is filled with miraculous signs indicating God's favor upon Jesus. The refusal is therefore filled with irony from Mark's standpoint. Jesus refused to give them the very thing that God has been abundantly doing through him all along and that they are too blind to see. Jesus has been just doing one miracle after another and the religious leaders have the audacity to say, show us a sign from heaven, prove to us that you are who you say you are. And I think what Jesus is, is saying here is, if you, have, if you don't get it yet, you'll never see. If you don't know already, then you must be utterly blind. Jesus refers to the religious leaders here as this generation. And this hearkens us or hyperlinks us back to Psalm 95, which is what we read in our call to worship this morning. Psalm 95 is the story of the recalling of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt there in Exodus 17. They saw God's signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. They experienced his salvation from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the going across on dry land, the destruction of the oppressive Egyptians. And yet... They come to this point where they want water, God provides it, they need food, God provides manna, and the people say in Exodus 17, 7, is God really among us? Is God really among us? Psalm 95, recalling this passage, says, Today, if only you would hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Notice there the language. They have not known my ways. This generation, they're, they're, they go astray in their hearts. They haven't recognized the ways of God. They were blind to them. So we can see Mark's who is Jesus moment right here in this text. Who is Jesus? Jesus is that very same God, the God of the Exodus, present now, clearly showing his power and presence among the people of Israel with many signs and wonders, bread from heaven, the power over the waters, life over death, healing and exorcism, and yet the religious leaders like ancient Israel have seen all of this and yet say, show us a sign from heaven to prove who you are. They're like ancient Israel when they questioned, is God really among us? I don't think so. I don't see any evidence of God really being among us. The sign from heaven, God himself is standing right before them and they are completely blind to him and his presence. My grandpa used to say this phrase often when he would teach. And I was reminded of it as I was reading this passage. But he used to say, none are so blind as those who refuse to see. And this is what we find with the religious leaders again and again. And it's not unique to them. This can be found in our day. We're going to look at this in a minute. But we have misconceptions about how God would work. And therefore, because of that, because we're so fixated on one way, on this one thing I want God to do, this one thing I'm so focused on, I miss the myriad of ways that God is present and at work in the world. None are so blind as those who refuse to see. Now this transitions to a warning to the disciples, and we find that in verses 14 through 21. We're told immediately after when Jesus is alone with his disciples, he strictly warns them, watch out and beware of the leaven or yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. But ironically, the disciples are thoroughly confused about what Jesus is saying, and they think he's mad that they didn't bring any bread. And so they're scrambling and they're blaming one another. Like, why didn't you bring bread? Why didn't you bring bread? We had so, many, so much bread left over. Why didn't we bring bread? And Jesus, just in his frustration, like, oh my gosh, you guys, I am not talking to you about bread. And then he recounts like the miracles to them. Like, look, we're good on bread, right? You remember 5,000, we had 12 baskets left over. We're good on bread. We've got the bread thing covered. 4,000, we've got seven baskets left over. We're good on bread, right? Everybody's got that. We're good on bread. The point is the disciples, again, they're dull. They don't understand that when Jesus speaks parabolically, there's a deeper meaning that's going on here. He's not warning them just about not bringing bread. He's warning them about something to do with the Pharisees and Herod. They're very different groups. But as we see throughout Mark's gospel, they are united in their opposition to Jesus 
his message and demonstration of God's kingdom. And they even plot together how to destroy him. We find this in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that after Jesus heals this man, they go away and the Herodians and the Pharisees plot together how they're going to destroy Jesus. Now, Jesus, warning his disciples, he says, Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, Jesus' question to the disciples, again, is another hyperlink, taking us back to Jeremiah 5, verse 21. And this isn't just a poetic way of saying, I can't believe how blind you are. It's a way of saying, look out. You are in danger of going the way of the Israelites in the days of Jeremiah. And you know what happened to them? They hardened their hearts to the message of Jeremiah and they lost the kingdom. Like the Pharisees and Herod, the people then were caught up with their own concerns, their own way of life. The rich were comfortable and so unconcerned about injustice. They were so unconcerned about wickedness in their society. The poor, the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner were being oppressed and perishing. They were being crushed under the weight of the rich. The people of Israel only cared for themselves and they didn't care for others. They had forgotten that God had called them to be his people of righteousness and justice. They had forgotten that he was the God of the nations, the God of mercy, the God of justice, the God of the poor, the God of the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. And you see, again, the ancient people of Israel had adopted an alternative kingdom vision. And they were blind and hard-hearted to the ways of God, just as they were in Jesus' days. And so Jesus is telling his, his disciples, you are in danger of going this way. Being blind to the ways that God is working. Being deaf to the ways that God is speaking. But Jesus says specifically to his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. So let's talk about that for a second. What in the world does that mean? Well, the Bible actually uses this term again and again, the term yeast or the term leaven, and it's most often used in scripture to show the permeating and destructive nature of evil or even just of evil influence, uh, to, sh to show the permeating and destructive nature of false teaching, hypocrisy. In Matthew's gospel, the same teaching right here is used to warn disciples and the crowds against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But in the context of Mark, it would seem that what Jesus is talking about is the Pharisees and Herod's wrong view and understanding of the kingdom of God. They have false and skewed versions of God's kingdom, and they clearly oppose Jesus the king. They have their own versions of what the messianic kingdom looks like and how it comes, and Jesus doesn't fit it. So we, we've already seen that the religious leaders don't like Jesus' version of the kingdom of God. He isn't talking about their politics. He isn't talking about hostile takeovers of the Romans. He's talking about the kingdom of God being like seed. He's talking about plundering and plundering the kingdom of darkness. He isn't keeping up with their beloved traditions. He's purposely dismantling them and going against them. 
He isn't giving honor and care to the religious system and leaders of the day. He's giving it to the poor, the possessed, the disenfranchised and outcast, the Gentile, the tax collector, and the prostitute. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders want a Jewish kingdom, a kingdom that benefits the Jews only, one that will uphold the law and their traditions with great strictness. They really don't care for the broader community that Jesus has been serving and and teaching. And as I was reading this, I was just thinking about what the Pharisees are after is actually a, a They're after a kingdom that benefits their tribe and their tribe only. So we think about that for a minute, just in our own context. When we think about the kingdom of God, who are these blessings for? The blessings and benefits are for my people. The blessings and benefits are for my political party. The blessings and benefits are for my neighborhood or my religious group. But as we've seen, this is not Jesus' gospel and his kingdom. So we must beware of any tribalism, any view of the kingdom or the gospel that turns people into enemies based on tribe, culture, politics, and the list goes on. The kingdom of God is not tribal. And Jesus has gone at lengths to prove that. He's going to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. He's healing the blind man that is in the region of the Decapolis. He's going to the outcasts. He's going to those who are looked down upon by the tribe of the Pharisees. And he's bringing them into his kingdom. Now, Herod is a bit different. His kingdom vision is about his dynasty. And as we've seen, his kingdom is completely for himself. Remember that passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, the way that he treats John the Baptist, the way that he treats his stepdaughter. It's all about his own lust. It's all about his own glory. It's all about his own comfort and benefits. It's about his power, his pleasure. And I think really reading this, it came across, man, Herod is a hedonist. That's what he is. He's just an Epicurean hedonist. He represents the one who is only concerned for themselves, their benefit, and comfort. But I think this is also a warning equally as applicable as the first to us. We get confused about this. The kingdom of God is not about me. It never has been. It never will be. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my success. It's not about my power, my fame. It's about Jesus. The kingdom of God is about the king. It's about who he is and what he's done. Me? What about me? What about you? We have been graciously rescued by him. And our life is now wrapped up in being his disciple, learning to follow Jesus in the way of the cross and on to resurrection not following culture in the way to selfish ambition and vain glory. So much of what has gone on during this pandemic, I, pandemic, I have just noticed that there is a softness to the church right now. 
And I think it's because the church in America, we have gotten so used to being comfortable. We have forgotten that the kingdom of God is not about our comfort. It's not about our success. It's not about how beautiful our home is, how ordered and right our families are, how much we have in the bank, how much we are able to give. It's not about any of those things. It's about us being made into the image of Jesus Christ. It's about his kingdom, his righteousness being brought on earth. And that takes sacrifice. That takes the loss of comfort, the cost of comfort. And we cannot forget that. A kingdom of comfort is a kingdom of Herod. A kingdom of tribalism is the kingdom of the Jews, and that was destroyed in AD 70. But the kingdom of God is everlasting. That is the kingdom that we are being offered in Jesus. Craig Hovey says this about the church. He says, the church is elected to responsibility, called to be the church to and for the world, not in order to save it or conquer it or even transform it, but to serve it by showing what redeemed human community and culture look like as modeled by the one whose cultural work led him to the cross. Sometimes we forget that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, don't we? We forget that that's actually what it is. Whoever would be my disciple, let him come after me. Let him take up his cross and follow me. It's a death to my dreams. It's a death to my glory. It's a death to my ambition. But it's to be given a new kind of glory, a new kind of ambition, a new kind of goal and a vision. A one that benefits all. A one that does the sacrificial work of Jesus. Church, we need to take Jesus' warning to heart to beware of alternative versions of the gospel and the kingdom of God. They are many and they are dangerous. Because we're not much different from the Pharisees or Herod. We create our own versions of what the kingdom of God, God's presence, his grace and blessing over our lives should look like. But it's strange when we actually look at the pages of Scripture because it usually looks nothing like the life of Jesus. It doesn't look like his character, his love, his faithfulness, his presence, the company that he keeps, his power, his suffering, his joy. So as disciples, we are constantly being called to recalibrate the kingdom to recalibrate the gospel, that vision, according to the life of Jesus. Leslie Newbegin, he said this, this is powerful. The choice for the church in every generation will be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by our culture? By the biblical story or the cultural story? And so I would say, even if at this moment we are disillusioned with or even blind to the way God is at work in the world, it might have to do more with our own agendas and perspectives that we bring upon Scripture, trying to mold Jesus and the kingdom into our image or how we think the kingdom does come or should come. And so how do we get healing from this? How do we receive correction? How do we stay in line? How do we guard against what Jesus warns here? I believe the answer is the whole motif of 
Mark's gospel, we need to lean all the more into Jesus, all the more into this gospel and scripture to see how good God is at work in ways we might miss, which leads right into our final story. And I'll only be a few more minutes. And this final story, we see this through Jesus' healing touch, a blind man is able to see everything. I'm going to read this last section from the ESV because I believe its translation truly captures Mark's message. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Don't even enter the village. This section works as a parabolic story of what Jesus is going to do for his own disciples and I believe still offers to do for disciples today. Right now, the disciples see Jesus, but not clearly. They get him, but not fully. And Jesus is going to heal their vision in the next passage so that they see everything. And in this story, we have a blind man and he is taken by Jesus by the hand which is significant. I mean, as I was reading this this week, I was just blown away. What was it like to be taken by the God of the universe to walk with him, to be led by hand by him? What an incredible picture that this blind man is being taken by God, the great shepherd, and he's being led outside of the village. And through Jesus' healing touch, he is able to see everything. A few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus is the one who opens hearts to receive God's love and God's spirit. But here we see that Jesus has come to open eyes as well, to see the world and history as it truly is. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I think that this is what this parable is really saying to us. This blind man is brought to Jesus Jesus takes him by the hand. Like this is such a disciple picture. Walking hand in hand with Jesus. He's taken outside of the village, away from influences, away from competing voices and competing visions. He's taken to be alone with Jesus. Jesus touches him. And through Jesus' touch, through this life-on-life touch, he is then able to see everything. I think this is what Jesus is offering on hand to disciples. He wants to be our vision. Jesus wants to be the definition of reality and meaning for us. 
He wants to be for us, as he says in the Gospel of John, the way. No, I don't know where I'm going, but I am on the way. I am with the way. No, I do not have the corner market on truth, but Jesus does, and I'm with him. He wants to be the way, the truth, the life, the definition of these things for us. And just like this man, we need Jesus, our rabbi, to take us by the hand, to walk us away from the crowds outside of the village, from the other influences and competing voices and visions, to touch us and open our eyes so we can see everything. And this is the challenge that we've been bringing up again and again in our discipleship to Jesus, right? To be with Jesus. It is so easy right now to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Because everything is remote. Our minds are remote. Our hearts are remote. It's so easy to be in something and yet not be in tune, to not really be with the thing that we're doing. I mean, how many of you have tried to do like a Zoom conference for work and you're just like, I cannot do this? Or I, I went to a pastor, I went to a pastor's conference on Zoom. It was the it was the worst. It, it just like I felt so completely disconnected from what was going on. And so I think the challenge for us right now is in this connected disconnectedness. It is vital that we remain connected to Jesus, that we prioritize being with him. There are so many influences going on right now. So many false narratives that want to sway and want to, want to sway us and want to control and, and tune in our vision. But we must, as disciples, let Jesus fine-tune our vision. And that can only come as we let him take us by the hand. As we get away from the other influences, as we receive that touch from him, that's the only way we're going to see everything clearly. We're going to see the world as Jesus sees it. We're going to see the world like C.S. Lewis said. We can see everything clearly because Jesus has given us these lens to see through. The lens of his kingdom, the lens of his gospel. And so, church, the takeaway or challenge for this week, then, I think, is to let the warning of Jesus, your rabbi, sit with you. Take it to heart. Let his warning to beware of competing visions for his kingdom sit with you this week and allow his life, his teachings, allow his posture to wash over you anew. Allow it to reshape your vision. And then follow him in his kingdom mission. And just a few questions for takeaway. We'll have these posted on the website so you can look them up again. But a question, do we really understand what Jesus' kingdom mission was and is all about? Do we really get it? And if we would say yes, are we sure? Who Jesus is what he's done, what he came to do, what he accomplished. And then have we made that the goal and vision of our lives? 
Remember when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. What, will we, what we will eat, what we will put on, how we will provide for ourselves. He said all those things will be taken care of. Do we understand not only what he is doing right now, but in our lives and in the world? And lastly, what in our lives or in our church would make Jesus groan today saying, you still don't get it? Are your hearts hard? Are your ears plugged up? Are your eyes closed? And then let's ask Jesus to reveal those things to us as we seek him. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, as we again come to this gospel, it's like this microscope that just looks at the minutiae of our lives. All these desires that make up the direction of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that under your microscope, Lord, that you would search us. Lord, that you would correct wrong ways of thinking. Lord, that you would reshape our desires. That they would be desires that would be from you, desires that would not destroy us, desires that would not hurt others around us, but desires that would bless others, desires that would bring glory and honor to you. Lord, we pray this morning that you would reshape our vision, that as we make time to be with you this week, That we would lay our lives, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our visions, that we would lay those before you. That we would hand them over asking you to be our vision, to reshape our hearts, our desires, and to lead us in the way of your truth. So Lord, we give ourselves to you, we give this community to you, and we pray, Lord, that we would continue to walk in the way of Jesus, that we would continue to let your presence, your way, your truth, your life shine through our lives so that others might see you, might put their faith in you, and might follow you to the cross and on to resurrection life. We pray this in your name. Amen.